Well, it's a non-fiction day today in the reading corner and helping me explore, and it literally is explore today, is Sangma Francis. Um, we're going to call Sangma Angela today because that's her first name. And we're talking about two books that she has written for Flying Eye. Uh, one is Everest and the other is Amazon. So you can see why I said we were going exploring today. Mm. First of all, let me welcome you from your travels into the reading corner. Thank you for having me, Nikki. Tell us a little bit about your approach to writing nonfiction and in fact, how your first commission came about. So the first commission actually was with Flying Eye and that one was Everest. And um, I had actually been working at Flying Eye as a junior copywriter and after a few years, like I'd gotten to know the editors and the team at Flying Eye quite well. And I had left at that point um, and they'd approached me to say, look, we've got this book idea. Would you be interested in writing it? Um, so obviously I said yes, um, but they had a few writers that they wanted to kind of they were considering. So um, they'd asked me to create a writing sample. So I went away, did some research and created a sample and submitted it. And um, yeah, they they decided to go with me, which was great. Mm, <laughs> which was fabulous. Great well, they're yeah. two, two books that I highly recommend to teachers on these subjects. I'm interested to begin with to know how you structured the book and whether that was part of the commission that you were given the structure or whether you had to find your way through and think, you know, yeah. what's a really good way to organise all of this rich material about yeah. Everest? That is really interesting because actually that is probably one of the hardest things, I think, to do with both books. And they were both very different. I mean, the way that Everest is now structured is that we start at the base of the mountain and we slowly make our way up. And as we progress up, we discover the different kind of flora and fauna and people that kind of um, belong to those kind of um, spaces. And it seems like an obvious way, perhaps, to kind of a structure it like that, like looking at it at the end. But at the beginning, it was so messy and we tried every which way. And I'd kind of come in with like a pile of information and loads of different, like put into loads of different spreads and it wasn't working. And so there was a lot of kind of um, conversations and back and forth with the editor at the time until we kind of settled on this. And then within that kind of that kind of backbone of kind of walking up the mountain then the spreads each had their own kind of life that was kind of quite painful to be honest uh, so when um i started on amazon i was much more aware that that really need to, needed to be defined more a bit earlier on because it really does kind of um influence what you decide to put in um so the amazon we done the same similar thing starting from the um the source of the river and then traveling all the way to the mouth and the chapters are split up by cities actually so it's Cusco then Iquitos and Manaus and then out to the mouth of the river but then I went away to the Amazon on this uh, research trip and we kind of realized that it didn't really work in that way because we were trying to talk about, okay, this happens here and that happens there. You know, it doesn't really work like that because animals swim down the river. Um, the distribution of trees around the river varies like so widely from one place to the other. It, you couldn't really separate it that way. So the river forms the backbone and that kind of encourages this idea of connectivity, but it's split into chapters, which I think is more contained, I guess. 
And of course, the great thing is that you don't notice there's a reader, all the hard work that's gone into making that so seamless. Let's yeah, you talked about this big pile of information that you had mm. before coming to the structure of mm. Everest. Where did that come from? So I order in books about the kind of the mountain itself, the expeditions, the kind of the environment there. But there's also lots of journals, um, scientific journals specifically for flora and fauna, especially if you want to kind of um, try and tap into anything that's much more contemporary or new science or new discussions that are kind of happening at the moment around a specific place. Um, I watch documentaries because I think that if you haven't been to a place, it's always very interesting to see visuals and to kind of get a sense um, and when you're looking, like if you're looking at a specific animal, you're really like, I'm like Googling, what do they sound like? What do they feel like? You know, you're really trying to get all the pieces of information because whether you use it or not, it might be that you want to talk about, I don't know, a deer's wet nose in a specific way because it adds a bit of color. Yeah. Mm. So it's quite, it's quite um, a wide pool I kind of go into um, to find all the information. And from there, you're filtering, bearing in mind your reader. And what did you have in mind as a reader? So the brief was, I think it was nine plus or eight plus. So I stuck with that. And it's a balance with nonfiction because you do have to, it has to be precise. There has to be the science behind it. So there is a kind of certain language that you have to use. But as much as I can, I try and kind of... um, elevate it in some ways um, for the reader to kind of speak directly to them Um, and also just try and explain something simply as much as I can because I know I I loved English I loved words growing up Um, science was not my forte it wasn't I really had to kind of um, almost reinterpret what the science teacher was telling me in the scientific kind of like in their in their terms in order to understand these concepts that I was learning so I understand that kind of some that 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 bit of struggle I guess with not necessarily always getting it straight away and I didn't want that I wanted I wanted any reader to be able to come to it and um, feel that it was open to them that the subject matter was open and of course you're aided in both books by two fabulous illustrators I am so lucky to have been working with both these illustrators they are absolutely amazing usually what happens is with both of them I send in the first draft and then it goes through a round of edits Um, so I'll rework certain areas it goes then I guess to the designer for layouts and and there's a point at which the kind of rough sketches come into the layouts with the text in there we can kind of see how it's kind of sitting together actually the text is too heavy here and the illustration does need more space and it needs more time so you'll kind of I'm happy to rework text and kind of uh, rephrase things or even cut something right back if it needs to if that makes the quality overall and the experience overall a lot better for the reader can we just name both illustrators so for Everest it was Lisk Feng and for Amazon? Uh, Romolo de Hippolito. So Romolo is actually Brazilian and um, Lisk is Chinese-American. And I think that they're both really individual, their styles, but they kind of capture the kind of space that they're both very different, obviously, the Everest and the Amazon River. But, the, you know, the colours that come through with the Amazon and the colours that come through with Everest, they're very... Um, I don't know, they really conjure the kind of um, the feeling of what it might be like in a cold, you know, harsh 
um, mountainous climate and the same with the Amazon forest, which is so rich with color and it feels kind of like vibrant. And that's the thing about the Amazon it is it is very vibrant, particularly with the noise. And you kind of get that somehow or to me, mm. you get that. Mm. Let's talk a little bit. Let's go to the Himalayas first and talk uh, about Everest. Yeah. So you talk, uh, first of all, about uh, the mountain and how the mountain got its name. Yeah. And I was really interested because all of the other mountains in the range have local names. Everest really sticks out because the yeah. name doesn't fit. Does it have a local name as well? It does have a local name. So, well, Tibetans call her, and um, this is my pronunciation, which I hope I get right, Shomolungma. Um, so it means mother goddess of the world. But we have the name Everest, and that was named after Sir George Everest, who was a Welsh surveyor. Um, and they were kind of mapping India at the time. But it was actually discovered to be the tallest mountains by a Indian mathematician um, who I kind of highlight in the book. It's Radhanath Sikdar. Um, and he's the one who kind of used the kind of triangulation to figure out that Mount Everest was yeah, the highest. And he was still about 100 miles away, which I think is insane. Yeah. yeah. And things change their size, don't they? <laughs> well, at the moment, it's supposed to be growing because of the way that the tectonic kind of the plates are kind of moving. It's kind of shifting up ever so slightly, never so slowly. So it's supposedly growing. Right. So it's in the growth stage. <laughs> yeah. um, you then take us into the foothills of the mountains and you talk mm. about the alpine environment we think about alpine as being something to do with the alps not to do with the himalaya so what's an alpine environment it's the tree line which is the um the highest height that can sustain trees so it's very cold and snowy and that's kind of what we kind of think of it you'd often think of i guess of pine trees because they can survive in that kind of landscape because the one thing that we think about first and foremost when we think about everest or all the attempts to climb and yeah. to conquer. And of course, one of the things I was really pleased to see in your book, and I think it is true that perhaps this is more the case, is a much stronger recognition of, for the role of the Sherpa. Yes. Tenzing Norgay, yes. in particular, with that uh, ascent with Edmund Hillary. Yeah. So much so that you put his name first. Yes. Yeah. I was very, very conscious of that actually, because I've been le- reading like, biographies and um, uh, books about the kind of the first expedition. And I suppose because there's so much documentation from the English teams and the Swiss, Swiss teams and the French teams, they've kind of kept diaries and the focus of the lens was on like, you know, their national kind of players. So a lot of the story centered around them, but actually the Sherpas and played such a significant role and I don't for me it was really important that they were kind of treated as equals um at the very least within these texts and so yeah I put his name first and I also wanted to end the passage and spread on a quote from Tenzig and I the idea that you you kind of talked about conquering the mountain I think that was very much the approach for a lot of these climbers it's the idea of conquering and being the first at the top whereas I think for the Sherpas there was far more kind of respect it wasn't about conquering the mountain in such in that way. And like, so once they reached the top, he says, at that great moment, the mountain did not seem to me a lifeless thing of snow and ice, but warm and friendly and living. 
And I think that kind of really sums up what the mountain is. It is this kind of living entity with life on it that needs to be thought of with that kind of respect. So there's climbing the mountain. And I think you discovered quite a lot as well about the mythology Mm. Uh, of the mountain and it's very tied into religion of local people as well can you tell us a little bit about that when we first came to the book we were looking at a place but we wanted to kind of give a 360 degree kind of view of it it wasn't just you know the animals and the plant life it's the people it's the culture it's the history and whilst it's non-fiction, I think that our relationship to the natural world is very much tied into stories. And some of those are based in myths and legends and local folklore. And it helps us to kind of understand our relationship to the world. And also the stories are so inventive, like it's a real celebration of the kind of uh, human creativity as well, I think. For me, non-fiction is kind of, it's not just facts and a list of information. Mm. It kind of Uh, helps you understand your own position in the world somehow it kind of colors colors in other parts of the world and and therefore allows you to kind of find your shape within that Um, it's interesting because in the uh, dewey decimal system in the libraries myth will be found under non-fiction oh really so it can be told because it's obviously way back it's related to people's religious beliefs as well And so to treat that as fiction is often seen as disrespectful to that particular culture and belief. Yeah, it makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about Everest now, because since those days of the sort of early 20th century and all of the uh, people that were climbing the mountain Mm. determined to be the first to get to the top, well, since then it's become a bit of a tourist Well, you know, you have to work hard at it, but there are many people (laughs) climbing the mountain now. Yeah. Impact is that having? I guess it's the same as any kind of space, which is kind of overcrowded and overpopulated and doesn't have the infrastructure to kind of support that. The sheer volume of people does mean that there is a lot of rubbish kind of left behind on the mountain. Um, And that can cause huge problems, especially if we're talking about things like human feces and anything that can decay because when it freezes over and if it was to wash back down the mountain into kind of water sources um, it can cause huge hygiene risks and problems and health problems um, for populations living further down. I mean there are structures and organizations and kind of incentives in place to encourage climbers to take their things back but it's something that to be really mindful of because you have to be very conscious of your impact Well, Amazon was a little different in as much as you did partway through the process. Yes. Get to visit. I know. So maybe I can start with your visit to, it was Brazil, wasn't it? It was Brazil. Yes, yes. It was amazing. It was part of a programme, a residency through Lab Verde and um, IMPA, which is the National Institute for Amazonian Research. And they invite artists and scientists to talk and um, have discussions around the climate, around the Amazon forest, around biodiversity. And the artists respond to that and create artworks to kind of uh, reinterpret the kind of science or the information. Um, And it was incredible. Like there were some amazing people that were there with me at the same time. But the forest itself is something like I've never felt so small in my entire life. 
And I remember, like, I think it was very early on, we had gone up the queer, it was like one of the tributaries to a um, research reserve. And we had gone on an expedition into the forest and um, the guide had kind of said, look, whatever happens, do not leave. Like, do not like go off to the toilet or see something and wander away. Because from here to Colombia, it's a pristine forest. There you will get lost and the chances of finding you are nil. And you really, well, not maybe not nil, but, you know, very, very small. And so you're just like, oh, my God. Like, you know, it's not like wandering in a forest on Dartmoor and in an hour you'll get to an A-road. It's an enormous, like, dense place but it's everything's huge I think the thing that one of the things that struck me on top of this kind of like this feeling of just being absolutely tiny is also the noise that was there like there is real cacophony of sounds constantly like in the water you're hearing the plop and slap of something lurking there and there's like frogs along the banks and constant kind of um bird sound and cicadas and when it rains because it rains like uh, throughout like every day a little bit um it's like real it's like almost drumming you know like huge plops of water slapping against leaves it's just really you're really immersed in this space which is I guess a humbling experience to be in that space mm-hmm. you then came back and you obviously tweaked uh, uh the text that had been yeah. written at that time yeah and the book ends up in four sections from source to sea yes wildlife people of the rainforest and then life on the river yeah So I discovered lots of new things in this book. I hadn't realised, for instance, about the different types of water and the different colours of water. I know. Tell us a bit about that. I know. That, I think, is incredible. I mean, you can see it in action. So when you go to Manaus, which is uh, in Brazil, you come to a place called the Meeting of the Waters, and that's where you have um, the confluence of two rivers coming together. And different waters you have clear water um, black water and white water so they're defined by the kind of the nutrient mineral content and the speed and temperatures um, and it kind of gives the water a different quality which in turn encourages different wildlife it encourages different trees so it's a really really important to the things around it as well as like what it looks like when you see it come together it's this like clash of these caramelly like toffee kind of water trickling through in this really like dark almost like coca-cola like clashing together but slowly moving and eventually they kind of um join and kind of uh filter that out and widen out mm. to the source but um yeah it's that was something new to me as well really incredible um and to understand how how that balance works as well because the black water it comes from when the forests are flooded and a lot of old decaying leaf matter falls in and it causes um, the kind of that kind of black color and a lot of acidity in the water. Um, and that in turn affects the kind of fish that might be in there, then therefore the larger mammals and therefore also the trees, because trees require different types of nutrient and different types of water or it encourages different types. So um yeah, it was just just even that small fact, which is also the kind of you know the bedrock of the 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 river, um, was super important. Yeah, mm. I found then, out so much information. I loved it. I know. And then the other thing that I hadn't come across before was the notion of three rivers, yes. like the Air River. Yeah, um, tell us more about that because that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Too. So we've got the, um, so obviously the Amazon River, which kind of flows out and everyone can see. And um, underground, I think it was 
six kilometers underground, there is a river called the Hamza River. And that flows very, very slowly, but the other way. And then on top of the Amazon, um, there's essentially like a, they call it the flying river or the aerial river. And it's basically when the trees are essentially transpiring. So kind of breathing in all of this liquid and then kind of expelling it. And as they're doing that, it's all kind of rising up and twisting around and um, it creates this kind of very heavy, moist water kind of system, which is airborne. Um, And that has a huge impact, you know, across the whole of South America. And if we think of like, you know, the Amazon, like we often talk about the Amazon being very important because the trees itself soak up so much carbon, um, but they also expel so much water. And it kind of has a huge impact on the, the kind of the health, essentially, of the entire planet. Of course, you talk a lot about the wildlife and there's so much there that's uh, of interest. Mm. But I'm just going to pick out one thing that I'd uh, not come across before, a paradoxical frog. Oh, yes. So it starts as a large tadpole, but over the course of, it li- of its life, it becomes smaller in size. I mean, there are some crazy creatures, or what we think of as crazy, but there's an entire logic to any animal, any tree, any shrub, any flower. And they really are, yeah, really fascinating. I mean, I researching this book, this was one of yeah many different amphibians and really having to choose. It's like, wow, how, like, which, which one? What animals did you see when you were there that really fascinated you? So actually, so in the wild, I saw pink river dolphin and I thought that was, well, when I first read about them, I was surprised because I didn't actually know that there were river dolphins. I kind of had always assumed that dolphins were kind of salt water and they are actually pink. Um, and they're pink because their skin is slightly translucent. So you see the blood vessels. So in the wild, I'd seen the pink river dolphins, but we'd also just outside of Manaus, there was a um, kind of nature reserve and they had um, a tank that had the otters and manatees um, in captivity because both are kind of um, endangered animals. So it's a kind of process of keeping them in captivity in order to be able to reintroduce them into the wild at some point. Mm. Um, And seeing these otters, I think they're quite terrifying, especially when you see them eat fish. They're really, because they're so big. An otter, like a giant otter in the Amazon can go up to 1.8 meters tall, which is taller than me um, I mean I'm, 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 those cute little things to bring up bright water and I know I know like <laughs> cutely floating on their back and kind of looking quite cuddly no they're massive and um and they're eating their fish they've got these kind of really big teeth and like tearing away at the flesh and you think oh my god I don't think I would swim in water with otters you discover or you talk quite a bit about the people who uh, have lived along the river um what evidence do we have of the sort of pre-columbian times and the people that lived there so this is really interesting and this is actually one of the lectures that we had when we were in the um when i was in brazil it was by a um professor called charles clements and he talked a lot about um kind of debunking this myth essentially that the amazon you know pre 
colonial kind of Europeans kind of arriving, being a space which is completely uninhabited. Uh, because it is this very dense forest and it's very difficult to um, understand how you could possibly live there, people assumed that it was just this empty space. But actually, um, I mean, there's all sorts of technology now which can kind of like scan the topography of the forest and have a look below and see how the earth has formed certain patterns, I suppose, for, that kind of indicate that there were societies living there. Another one of them is looking at the actual trees. There are certain areas where you would have, and the forest itself also actually, um, a much higher density of certain fruit trees or trees that are very useful to humans. One of them being, for example, the peach palm, which can be used um, like where the fronds are braided together. It can be used as a sort of rope or as thatching to make baskets and houses. Um, And the the hypothesis is that in order to have that so, so many trees like that, they would have had to be cultivated to some extent. So people would have actually at that point planted more of these trees because they were very useful. Um, Another way, another thing is obviously with trees that um, are particularly tasty for humans, if you are to be eating some of the seeds um, and depositing the seeds in areas, um, they are going to also grow um, naturally from your kind of waste, essentially. Um, So there's, been like you know the, the the estimate is about six million I think five to six million people they estimate to have lived in the forest pre-Columbian um so pre-Columbian meaning like pre-Christopher Columbus coming mm. across the Americas which is incredible absolutely fascinating yeah. well that is literally scraping the surface <laughs> but hopefully has given listeners enough to think that these are books that are worth dipping into um and it's been such a pleasure talking to you so thank you so much Angela thank you thank you it's been really lovely talking to you in the reading corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review if you would like to find out about other events and courses visit justimagine.co.uk join us again in the reading corner on your favorite podcast platform